Hello and welcome to the Phuket Stories Podcast. I'm your moderator, Saigon Steve. On this special podcast episode, we'll talk with military personnel who were stationed in Vietnam and talk with them about their extraordinary experiences. This podcast is pre-recorded, but you're invited to participate on future podcasts by emailing your contact information to phuketstories at gmail.com. That's phuketstories at gmail.com. So let's get started with today's special guests. Our special guests today are Jan Scruggs and Dr. Stephen Phillips, who served in the Vietnam War. Jan Scruggs conceived the idea of building a memorial to Vietnam veterans and founded the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, which built the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. The wall, as it is known, is visited by over 5 million persons yearly. Dr. Stephen Phillips served in Vietnam with the 101st Airborne, the 27th Surgical Hospital, and then at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Jan Scruggs, take it away. Yes, Jan Scruggs here with Dr. Stephen Phillips. And uh, Dr. Phillips has done uh, some amazing things in his life. Uh, He has six patents. He has uh, authored over 125 articles. He has spent some time with the NIH, National Institute of Health. He's a very well-known person in the heart community. Why don't we start from here you are in high school and you're thinking, what do I want to do when I grow up? Do I want to be a lawyer or a doctor? Why did you decide to go into medicine? Well, Jan and Saigon Steve, thank you for having me on. Ever since I could remember, as a young child, I wanted to uh, be a physician. Actually, I did want to be a doctor, and I uh, spent my young years after grade school and uh, during high school volunteering in a hospital, you know, pushing people around the wheelchair and uh, running little errands and just being totally impressed by physicians and nurses and the healthcare personnel. One of the orthopedic surgeons actually mentored me and took me in to see an operation. Uh, Actually, it was, I remember this, it was an amputation uh, when I was about 12 or 13 years old, and that solidified it. So there we are, and just went through high school, college, and medical school. And in September of 1968, you had the opportunity to visit the interesting country of Vietnam. (laughs) And uh, you initially went to the Special Forces Unit, and what did the Special Forces do to you? So a major in the Special Forces was mentoring me, and he gave me a letter uh, recommending that I go to the 5th Special Forces in the Trang. Uh, When I got to Vietnam, I was unassigned, which was a little unusual. And I waited in line at the uh, assignment outpost in Benoit, and I got to see this uh, Colonel Couch, who sadly later on I learned was killed, who said, well, I can't send you to special forces because you're not fully trained, but I'll do the next best thing and I'll send you to the 101st, which he did. I just mentioned when I got up to the headquarters in uh, Fubai Way for the 101st, the doc who I replaced was happy that I was there because he was from the 173rd 
and he was uh, taking over temporarily because the doc that I was taking the post of had been killed. So that was my greeting. Tell us about uh, Phu Bai, and there was a huge Vietnamese cemetery, and what, what did the Army do to the cemetery? Well, it was very interesting. Uh, Phu Bai in Vietnamese means grave or gravesite. And uh, when they decided to uh, set up Camp Eagle, which was the base camp for the 101st, we had moved up from Kuchi, which is outside of Saigon. Uh, they just brought the bulldozers in and they just flattened out this huge, uh, almost a square mile of land that was a tremendous uh, Vietnamese, uh, very sacred cemetery. It was uh, none of us really uh, knew about that until later on when all the Vietnamese were protesting continuously. And as a doctor uh, going into the villages around the area doing these medcaps, uh, I, I, I learned about this. And uh, it was devastating. It was just awful. I don't know, you know who decided to do that because there was plenty of open land all over the area that they could have gone into. Uh, so that was a very sad, sad event. And uh, during the rainy season, uh, 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 pieces of bones and so forth would, would be uncovered. I don't want to get too graphic because it's uh, it, it really is too awful. Well, it's interesting to note that in, in Vietnam and many places in Asia, ancestor worship is sort of the official or unofficial religion. I mean, even Catholics do, do it as well. So when you disturb the graveyards, it'll kind of blow up in your face. No, I was going to say, my third son married a Vietnamese uh, girl. They, they were both people, and she was born in the U.S. And when we met them, uh, we had to uh, go into a small corner of their uh, room in their house uh, with a shrine and meet their ancestors. Oh, isn't that wonderful? It's nice to do things like that. Yes. Why don't you tell us about your first shower in Fubai when you arrived with the 101st Airborne? Uh, things were in total disarray, as you can imagine. Uh, planes were landing, helicopters were going everywhere. My medical platoon and I had just finished setting up our, uh, our aid station tent, uh, GP uh, Lodge tent, uh, dug into a revetment and sandbags around the outside. And uh, we hadn't bathed or cleaned up really for about two weeks because we were in transit. It was uh, monsoons. And uh, we finished setting up the tent and it was close to dusk. It was about four in the afternoon. And uh, one of the medics came back and said, hey doc, they set up a shower over the hill, one of these uh, water bags. So I sent the guys one at a time to go up there uh, and uh, when they finished, they came back and said, Doc, it's your turn. Go ahead. So I grabbed my towel. I had my boots, you know, nothing else, and my M16. And I went up and uh, took the first shower in about two weeks. And if you remember, Jan and Steve, mm. you turned the water on, you got wet. You turned the water off, you soaked up, and you turned the water back on, and you washed off the soap. And uh, I did that, and it was beginning to get dark. And I started back, uh, towel wrapped around my waist. Uh, my soap and, ta and uh, M16 uh, in my hands. And as I started down this mud hill, I felt a wire and I thought, oh, immediately trip wire, booby trap. And I dove headlong into the mud, waiting for everything below my waist to get blown off. 
and uh, I counted, and nothing happened. Uh, so after about 30 seconds, I got up, uh, covered in mud, caked in mud, went back, of course, to uh, clean off in the shower, and the water was gone. So be that as it may, what the heck, I'm in Vietnam. I started back down the hill again and uh, skidded past the place that I tripped, thinking it was uh, a dud. And uh, a few uh, yards later, I hit another wire, and I realized they were comma wires uh, strung all over the place. (laughs) You know, dumb me. And uh, so I just continued on my way, and as I was walking to uh, makeshift road, this Jeep comes flying by. It backs up and out jumps this uh, this uh, what a full uh, full bird colonel in starch, clean uh, uniform, jungle boots, and is ranting and raving and screaming at me. I'm not even sure what he was talking about. His driver's kind of making funny faces behind him, waving at me not to say anything. And he asked, "Who are you?" And I told him I was Captain uh, Phillips. I said, I'm the doctor. He said, you're totally out of uniform. He didn't even give me a chance to explain what was going on. He said, you're relieved of your command. And uh, I was very grateful because I thought, well, now I can go home. (laughs) Uh, And and I basically said, you know, decided in my mind whether or not uh, I should call the MPs and just deem him crazy. Because as a physician, I could do that and, and have him locked up or just ignore him. So I just turned away and I just walked back to my aid station, uh, gave him the finger as uh, I was walking away and I heard, I heard him screaming away at me. Uh, the, that evening, the division surgeon came down to uh, the aid station tent and we chatted a while. And, uh, he said, he, he said, just ignore it. He's uh, has a reputation of being a little overboard you know one of these pearl handled pistol guys uh, and, and uh, so i left it at that uh about two weeks later uh during sick call one of the medics came to me and said that the colonel is here because i told the boys uh, uh what had transpired and of course uh you know it's 110 degrees in the shade inside a tent and we basically walked around in uh, gi underwear boots and maybe a t-shirt and Colonel came in, and uh, he said, uh, you remember me? I said, of course I do, Colonel. Let me take care of you myself. He wanted his flu shot. And uh, I ended up giving him three times the normal dose of flu shot, thinking, well, maybe he'll get a little bit of a fever or whatever. You know, I wanted to make sure the colonel was protected from flu, so I gave him three times the normal dose. In the middle of the night, his aide came, woke me up, that he had 104 fevers was delirious. Uh, I had to medevac him. I, I really felt pretty badly about that. Uh, you know, in retrospect, uh, I didn't think it was going to do anything bad. Uh, but uh, I checked at the hospital later on. He actually survived. And he was transferred somewhere else. And um, his uh, his aides threw me a little party. They gave me a couple cans of beer. So Everybody hated this guy. Take it. Oh, he, he was, uh, I probably saved his life because he would have been fragged. I'm yeah. pretty sure. I mean, that was the word around the, the camp. There was a very interesting, not a pre- exactly a precise weapon used by the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese, the 122 rocket. <laughs> and these rockets, yeah, they weighed about 75 or 100 pounds, explosives, TNT in them. Can you explain that you needed a new Jeep? 
And can you explain the detonation uh, system that the Viet Cong had devised to shoot these uh, missiles at your camp? Our base camp was sort of in a low-lying area surrounded by lots of hills, not far from uh, the Asheville Valley. And we would get rockets in uh, usually every evening, beginning around 6 p.m. and finish 2 or 3 in the morning, and we just would hunker in our bunkers and so forth. The way they set these rockets up, uh, they weren't even set off by living people. They would set a detonator in a can of water with uh, one end of the uh, battery terminal floating on a piece of wood, the other end at the bottom of the can uh, with a 12-volt battery, and the water would evaporate. Uh, the ignition would set off the rockets, and there were hundreds of rockets, uh, tens of hundreds of rockets, and they would just land aimlessly around our base camp. Well, I had a, uh, a Jeep ambulance. I had two Jeep ambulances and a quarter-ton truck, but one of the Jeep ambulances uh, would just die. You'd be driving it along and transporting someone, and it would just die. And so we, we took it up to the motor pool multiple times, and they, they identified the problem. It was a small part, but they said that was a first echelon activity, and they were a third echelon uh, unit, and they couldn't replace anything. Desperate times required desperate measures, and we, de- we really needed that Jeep ambulance. We couldn't have something failing as we were transporting a wounded person or supplies, needed supplies. So we set the uh, Jeep ambulance out in the open, knowing the rockets would be coming in, and it just happened to be some C4 planted around it. And when one of the rockets, 122-millimeter rockets, hit nearby, the C4 detonated as well, along with the Jeep ambulance. We had drained the, gra- the gas out of it uh, to make sure it wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> For the uninitiated, C4 is a, an explosive, a, a little explosive, a little. and you can put it on... Uh, on, on vehicles or anything that needs to be blown up, and it, it will do the job. It did the, it did the job, and uh, next day or the day after, two days later, I had a brand-new Jeep ambulance that ran perfectly. Dr. Phillips, I'm very interested to hear your replacement story, the guy who replaced you. My, my replacement came in about two weeks uh, early. I'm not sure why. So I said, I asked my CO, can I, uh, can I go home early? He said, yeah, I'll go spend a couple of days with the guy, get him squared away, and then uh, you can leave. Now, I didn't have orders uh, uh, to go home. Uh, uh, it was two weeks hence. But he said, you know, I wanted to try and get out. So I, I went to Da Nang. I, I rode a helicopter to Da Nang. I couldn't get a flight out of Da Nang. I uh, slept on the, in the airport, uh, took a helicopter flight down to Saigon, uh, was in Saigon. I uh, went to Cameron Bay, and at that time, I had a captured SIS that I was bringing, SKS that I was bringing home with papers that were legal, and I had my 45, and I was getting tired of carrying around those two things, so I threw the 45 away, and uh, after about four days of just sleeping in airports, I finally got on a, uh, actually a Graves registration flight. It was awful. Uh, went to Bangkok, refueled, and went to uh, uh, Seattle, Tacoma, and uh, basically slept on the floor of the plane. The pilots were very nice, gave me a bl- couple of blankets, and I woke up. And we, we landed about 5 in the evening, and I got off the plane, you know, just in my jungle fatigues, carrying my SKS in a bag and uh, my little uh, duffel. And 
uh, got out and I said to the uh, MP, uh, where can I uh, get get to the airport so I can get home? He said, oh, you can't go without, uh, uh, you know, a uniform. You can't go in, in fatigues. And I said, okay, where's the, uh, where's the men's room? Because I saw some buses outside uh, to going to the airport. And he said, oh, it's down the hall, uh, Captain. And he turned away, and I ran out the door, and I got on one of the buses. And everybody was in, uh, in khakis, and they looked at me, and I smelled pretty bad. But I sat down, and uh, it was about an hour, an hour and a half ride to the airport. And I got off the bus, and there were protesters, people with beards and dirty fatigues carrying around M-16s, you know, plastic guns and so forth. And I was wandering. I, I was walking in the, in, in the road, not on the sidewalk and wondering what to do and this uh, airlines uh, hostess came up to me and said you look different from these other folks and so i explained i had just come home from vietnam and i was trying to get back to new york to see my family she said come with me and she took me down into the airport down the stairs into the pilot's quarters there was a shower and uh i took a shower cleaned up and when i got out of the shower honest to god i'll never forget this there were some khakis and a plane ticket to New York City sitting there and said, on us. And I don't even remember which airline it was because I was sleep deprived and very uncomfortable. I mean, I, I to this day, I want to kiss this person, this airline. And I got to New York and I got home. I mean, that was amazing. You know, uh, saying to me, you don't look like these other people protesting. And then on us. It was incredible. Quite a story. Well, we uh, really appreciate your service uh, in the Vietnam War. The surgeons did such incredible work. Also mentioned at the end, 2017, uh, several doctors told my wife that uh, I was probably not going to make it. I had endocarditis, and uh, uh, it was impossible to do surgery. So... Somehow or another, uh, Steve immediately swung into action, talked to my cardiologist, the surgeon, and got everything uh, very much squared away. So I I owe a great deal to Steve Phillips and uh, his hard work. We'll now turn it over to Saigon Steve. Dr. Phillips, was your uh, assignment in Vietnam basically like the TV show on MASH? Were you basically like Hawkeye Pierce, the surgeon? No, I was not trained enough. Uh, I was a general medical officer, and uh, so I had a medical platoon. So I was part of an infantry uh, company, and I, we were the, a medical platoon. Uh, but I did get to do a lot of surgery uh, because after the uh, 68 Tet Offensive, uh, I was up in the Way Fubai area, the Way Hospital, which was like uh, Bellevue Hospital or uh, uh, Chicago or any other hospital was destroyed. And the division surgeon sent me and my medical platoon down to help reopen the hospital. And so it was just a big city hospital. There were auto accidents, gunshots, uh, appendicitis. And I uh, spent uh, four months uh, living down in Saigon, worried as, worried as hell. We were so worried that we were going to get killed uh, uh, because we had no security. Uh, but the Vietnamese took care of us. They knew what we were doing, and I'm sure I operated on Viet Cong, on old papasans, on pregnant women, and I ended up uh, getting a year's credit toward my training in the U.S. B-52 
because of the numbers of surgeries I did. So it was somewhat similar to that. Dr. Phillips, doing the research on you, it says in 1970, you went back to Vietnam to do with a research team the study of effects of altitude on the wounded flown from Vietnam to the Philippines and Japan. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, I was at the uh, Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, and uh, there was an anesthesiologist uh, colonel who had this idea that going up to altitude in an unpressured or a poorly pressured plane would not be good for wounded. Uh, so he got permission, and he took us as a team, there were six of us, back to uh, Vietnam. And uh, we were stationed in Saigon, and we asked for volunteers to uh, instrument them with uh, IVs and arterial lines and to measure certain uh, parameters of, of respiration. And uh, some were very severely wounded. Some were just sick people coming home with malaria. And uh, we made over three-month period, we probably uh, studied uh, at least 100 different patients. And we couldn't analyze our studies uh, in Vietnam. Uh, we had a lot of the blood samples on ice. And a few months later, we were able to, when we came home, we were able to analyze everything. And we wrote up a report saying that it was very detrimental to fly wounded people up to a 10,000 foot type of uh, altitude in a C-141. Uh, which was how they could pressurize the, the cabins. Uh, and we recommended that they just be transported by sea. And, of course, they classified that whole thing and uh, they buried it uh, because that was the only available transport that they had at that time. And uh, we finally got that paper published in the 90s, way after the war was over. But uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, we were told not to say anything about it, uh, though we did, but nothing really could happen because they had no real facilities to transport people other, otherwise except for the comfort and the mercy, the two hospital ships that were offshore. And that transport by sea kind of worked during World War II, didn't it? Absolutely, of course, because uh, I don't think anybody realized that depressurizing a very uh, sick, wounded uh, individual uh, was that detrimental. Some people actually on, some of the GIs were actually on ventilators. Dr. Phillips, one last question, and we'll leave it on a light note if we can. When you went back to Vietnam, you went and got a haircut. Tell us about that. <laughs> it was a very interesting time. Uh, uh, I purposely wanted to get back to uh, Wei and Fubai to see what it looked like. Uh, obviously, it was much different than when I was there. Uh, but I was wandering through uh, some of the uh, back uh, streets of Fubai, and I came across a uh, an open uh, shop, which was selling everything from T-shirts to uh, Vietnamese beer, and I noticed a barber chair. And uh, I needed a haircut, and so uh, I went over, and the papasan, the, the gentleman barber, was... I was standing there smoking a cigarette, and I motioned that I need a haircut, and he put me in the chair, and he started cutting my hair. And also, uh, when he was done cutting my hair, he flipped me back and shaved me, which I didn't ask for, but I guess I needed a shave with a straight razor. And during the process, his son came in, who spoke English, and uh, he asked me what I was doing there. I said, I'm a tourist, but I was here during the war with the American Army, and we chatted, and he was translating for his uh, 
father, and he said my, his father was in the army as well. I don't think this uh, young man even realized which army his father was in. And when we finished, uh, his father opened up the uh, drawer of the barber table and pulled out a little uh, photograph of him. Uh, he was 16 years old in black pajamas carrying an AK, and he was a VC. And we looked at each other, and I said, you know, you had a razor to my throat. And his son translated, and he, he smiled. Uh, tears uh, welled up in his eyes and my eyes, and we hugged and uh, took a picture together, and I wished him luck, and he wished me luck and uh, thanked him. Uh, glad that he made it, and he said, I'm glad you made it, and that was it. Amazing. It was absolutely amazing. What a great story. Well, Dr. Stephen Phillips, we'd like to leave you with this. Thank you for your service. Well, thank you for your service, and thank you, Jan, and thank you for the opportunity of uh, sharing some of these stories with you. Well, that wraps up another special episode of Cat Stories. If you'd like to participate in a future Cat Stories podcast, email your contact information to Stories at gmail.com. That's Stories at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Cat Stories podcast. I'm Saigon Steve.